Welcome to the fourth episode of Where I'm Coming From, a podcast that captures life experiences relating to Africa, one gripping interview at a time. This week, we go back to the 80s and find out why a small group of British farmers put their cows on an aeroplane in 1988, flying them off to Uganda and unknowingly kicking off a charity that would go on to transform millions of lives. That's coming up after this message. These podcasts are brought to you by the charity Send a Cow, who are helping farming families in the poorest parts of Africa to lift themselves out of poverty for good. Get involved now at www.sendacow.org and thanks for listening. As you just heard, these podcasts are produced by Send a Cow, who've spent the last three decades helping families in the poorest parts of Africa to grow not only their own food, but also their confidence and their aspirations. Today we're doing something a bit different for this podcast and celebrating the charity's 30th birthday by hearing the incredible story of how they were founded. Along with several other West Country farmers, David Bragg literally sent his cows to Uganda in 1988 in the hope that their milk could provide nutrition to communities reeling from a brutal civil war. In doing so, he became one of the legendary founding farmers of Send a Cow, and I sat down with him in their UK office to find out what happened next. That's all good. Okay, that's rolling. So, David, 30 years since the start of Send a Cow. Does it feel that long? Yes and no. Um, it's nearly half my life. Uh, but it doesn't seem that long ago that it started, and it's been an amazing journey. How old were you, and what stage in your life had you reached um, at that time when Send a Cow was just beginning? Well, I was 36. I was in partnership uh, with my father on a dairy farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and was more or less running it by that stage of my life. I got three children, um, the oldest who would have been eleven at that time, and a sense of uh, <coughs> thinking that would be what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I guess, yeah, a, a, a time when you're old enough to know better and still young enough to have all the energy to to get things done. It's a good age to be. Yeah, I'd like to be that again. <laughs> and obviously, it's a grand idea, isn't it? And perhaps it would it would have been tempting at the time if you'd heard about this idea to think, well, putting cows on plane—that's an eccentric idea. Did it seem a far-fetched idea at the time? No. I mean, I knew that um, that uh, breeding stock was being flown around the world anyway. There was also a sense in which, uh, being a breeder of uh, Holstein Friesian cows, back in the pedigree of the development of the British uh, Holstein Friesian uh, breed, there was a bull that had been imported from South Africa. They probably wouldn't have been flown because he would have come by ship. And so there was a sense in which, you know, the part of the breed of the UK is influenced by South African bloodlines. So they must be okay in Africa. So not not at all eccentric. It seemed to make a lot of sense. You know, the idea of not so much giving people money or providing them with emergency aid or milk powder or whatever, of providing the actual milk, was what drove the whole process. Um, and for me, the idea fermented when I was listening to the radio uh, and heard about a nurse from Cornwall who had been killed in a car accident in India. She'd gone out to do development there. 
and some Cornish farmers thought it would be a good idea to send some small young cows, heifer cows, to a project in India. Well, I never knew what happened to that project, never knew even if it got off the ground, but it started something in my mind and uh, I uh, made contact with my um, supervisor, a volunteer. I was a volunteer for Tear Fund and told the story about development, the Tear Fund way, in my community. To any church that invited me along, and uh, club or anything. So um, I, I shared the idea with a guy called John Perkins, who was my supervisor. Uh, he worked for Tierfund, um, and John took it back to Tierfund, and they said, "No, we don't do livestock. Tell him to sell his cows and give us some money." Well, I didn't have any cows to sell anyway, from the point of view of donation. So the idea just sat there, <clears throat> and then um, Anthony Bush. Um, from Bristol, who was a close friend of John Perkins, went to Nigeria on a preaching tour and came back with a similar idea. John, do you know anybody who might be interested? Oh yeah, David Bragg down in, in Devon. So Anthony Bush rang me up. And none of us had any level of understanding of whether it was going to be eccentric or whatever. Mm -hmm. Both of us felt that it was something that would work. We knew that livestock works in Africa. It doesn't work everywhere in Africa. That's very different. Uh, and so Anthony made contact with some of his friends and I made contact with friends in Devon, people that I knew, all farmers, that had some connection in some way. And we just met and got on with it, with the idea. So these are the founding farmers? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I rang three in Devon. Um, Joel Alford, Richie's dad, who was a close friend through the Tearfund link mm -hmm. and through church. And he was... Uh, on the, um, the board of the, host, you know, the UK Holstein Friesian breeders, so he knew all the breeders. Mm -hmm. um, a guy called Robert Veer who'd come to live close by to me. Um, Robert had been in Tanzania as a agricultural missionary and had been looking after black and white cows that came in from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was very interested. And then a guy called Andrew Friend, who was up in North Devon, who'd spent three years in Kenya and three years in Sudan and was farming and was running a charity or well, running a business actually um, that was training young Africans in good agricultural practice. So none of us ever questioned whether it would work or not. Robert particularly said of course it works, I've been there and done it. The development community and a lot of other people sort of, I can't do that, it's not going to work, they'll die. My first ever radio interview was uh, would have been around about April uh, 1988 when I went in and gave a, an interview with Radio Devon because somebody who had lived in Durban in South Africa beforehand had rung into the radio station and said, this is a crazy idea, they shouldn't do it, they'll all die. So my first ever radio interview was counteracting that. I'd never been to Africa at that stage. Yeah. But there was a real conviction. You were immediately on the defensive. Those people. Yeah, but there was a real too. conviction that, you know, why won't it work? <laughs> So those founding farmers, I'm kind of imagining it being like the A-team and you all meeting around someone's kitchen table at midnight to you know, plan your moves. Was it, was it a bit like that? We never met around at midnight, but yeah, that was how it was. It was a very casual, informal group of people. And for <clears throat> nearly 12, more than 12 months, we had explored it. Actually, that's incorrect. We explored it for about six or seven months. Um, Anthony Bush was all for starting it. 
And some of us were saying, whoa, you know, you can be the accelerator, but we're going to be the clutch and the brake on this thing. Um, we need to find the right place. And then, uh, out of the blue, serendipitous, God-driven, I don't know, this guy called Francis Gonahasa came over from Uganda, again on a church tour, met Anthony Bush, got talking about the, the, uh, the idea and said, well, we need cows in Uganda. We have a project already going under the Church of Uganda that gives cows to widows. Uh, and we haven't got any cows to give because the American organisation that was funding it had run out of funds. Send us your cows. So uh, Anthony Bush and another farmer from nearby here, Gerald Adicott, took their own personal money. Gerald got his church to help fund him and they went to have a look. And they came back and said, this is where we should be sending cows. So the idea and its, and, and its destination didn't make any connection until seven or eight months into the discussion. But from then on, it was a commitment to, to forming a charity, launching it and getting those first cows going. So in a way you were discussing the idea and then the destination came to you almost coincidentally. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It is actually. It was when we actually sent cows to Uganda that we learnt about an American organisation called Heifer International. We'd been doing it since 1946, I think. Mm. That was an idea that, that came from the Spanish Civil War, where a, um, a, an American Christian farmer was on peace, uh, what they call peace corps mm. work, giving milk to Spanish children who were in trouble because of the Civil War in Spain. And he said, not a cup, but a cow. <coughs> And the Second World War got in the way of his idea, but they eventually sent cows to Puerto Rico just after the, uh, the Second World War. Um, so it wasn't even a new idea, but we'd never heard of it before. It, just, it, it generated in the UK. Yeah. Fascinating. It's a brilliant idea. And I, I obviously have never tried to load a cow onto a plane before, but you have. And could you tell me, is that an easy thing to do? Is it logistically tricky to... Get a, pl- a cow onto an aeroplane? Well, we, uh, we engaged a, a livestock shipping organisation, so people who knew what they were doing, and obviously had got the connections in the airline industry. Uh, every single animal that was sent was halter trained, in other words, we got them used to being led um, using a rope halter. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty simple, really, it's just a matter of, of logistics. Uh, the cattle were kept here locally at Corston Fields Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, they were quarantined there. They had to be quarantined for two weeks before they flew. And they stayed there until the airline gave the signal to, to move them. Did you um, fly with them? Yeah, I flew twice with, with cattle. That was part of the deal. We had to provide the, uh, like the cowboy element. Um, so our responsibility on the flight was uh, just to keep an eye on them. So open fuselage, um, cargo plane, we sat in the front three seats, that's all there was, and immediately behind us was the cargo net, and immediately behind that were the livestock crates. The first time I went, we had a Jersey cow that decided she was going to lie down, and it's preferable for animals to travel stood up, because otherwise the others might sort of tread on them. So we just jumped in and persuaded her to get up. Ended up getting the other end smelling of livestock, but still, yeah, we were far away. And if you, if you could put us onto that plane journey again, um, what kind of conversations do you think you would have been having with your fellow founding farmers? 
Well, we were flying by night, so a lot of the time we were asleep other than when we were checking, but ah, there was a sense of anticipation. I'd never flown in a jet aeroplane before, so my first experience of a white-bodied jet was with cattle. And we had goats on as well for, um, for an American organisation that wanted some goats. Um, and anybody who tells me that goats don't smell should have been on that plane, they certainly do. Yeah, the conversation would be one of anticipation. Um, I think I went with the third shipment, so we had some knowledge of what happens before. Fascinating experience when you come into land. As the plane dips to start the landing process, so all the condensation that has come from the animals breathing in the, in the uh, fuselage gets sort of ran, runs all the way down through on the top of the, drops off just where we were sitting. The time, the second, or the first time I, no, the second time I went, we had a, a lady that was working for Sendico part-time as a volunteer and partly paid. Um, she put her umbrella up, because otherwise all this lovely green cow breath would have run down over her. <laughs> it's a fascinating experience. I mean, the, the first flight, um, the loadmaster uh, invited me to go and sit in the, in the uh, cockpit with the pilots as we landed at Rome for refuelling. That was just... Just great. That sounds exciting. It was. And of course, um, there were people who met you there on the other side yeah. uh, who were working with you too. Um, what happened to those first cows that went over? And Did you know anything of whose lives they were going to change? Um, not really, no. We, we obviously trusted the, the Church of Uganda de- development group. We, you know, the first farmers who went out and met them. But on the first occasion that, that I went, because cows had gone the year before, we were taken to to meet up with um, some of the farmers who'd received them. And that was my first experience of what actually happened when an animal was given. And that was good. That was very encouraging. Early days. Um, I remember Uganda being a country of depression because it had been through 18 years of civil war. I remember thinking, how on earth will this ever change? Um, and the second time I went was six years later and the country was so so different whereas when we were there the first time we had to go through army checkpoints you certainly wouldn't produce a camera uh, anywhere near anybody from the army because it would have been confiscated and we might have been as well so a real sense of oppression and in the depression six years later it was everybody's hand on the the horn and the traffic jams and just a totally different sense of, of, of purpose. But I do remember those early days. It was a far from vibrant country. If we fast forward 30 years and uh, we've got Sendikau in the 21st century, uh, working with gender equality, organic farming, uh, a million lives changed, and the charity's won awards for its innovation. When you see Sendikau now, how does that make you feel? Humble that have been part of something that I never anticipated but could have been part of. And proud. I mean, I don't think they're contradictory. As I look back over my life, it becomes extremely worthwhile. Could you ever have imagined the enormity of uh, the kind of seeds that you were sowing back then, do you think? No. I think if we had imagined that, we may have not started it because it would have been too daunting. Um, because none of us had the experience of to develop something like that. And I have to say that 
when I went the second time, 1995, I went thinking, it's been great, it'd be nice to go back and, and see what's been part of, but maybe what's next for me in my life outside of my farming experience. Um, asked to go and see a cow that had come from my farm, because I think four came from, from my farm and went to different families. A cow called Gracie, quite, a, quite an applicable name really. I was blown away by the change that had taken place in the family's life. <clears throat> blown away to the extent that um, my wife and I had been talking about what our future would be on the farm, thinking about selling the cows in order to make more time to, to, to be able to contribute to life outside of farming as well as farm. I was absolutely convinced that that's what I had to do when I got back. Um, Brenda, my wife, late wife, met us at Heathrow and I didn't want to go home. We went and walked around Starhead Gardens uh, and I explained to her what my thoughts were. And there was a sense in which I couldn't go home and carry on my life as it had been. And uh, we consciously made a decision then to sell the dairy cows in order to make more time for our involvement in activities outside of farming. She went on to become a counsellor of young people with the YMCA in Exeter. I ended up working for Syndicate, but that took seven years to develop from that point of that decision. Yeah. But it was, yeah, that was my uh, tipping point decision in my life. It's a definition of life change, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it, never thought that that's what would be. When, um, when you see young people today who they still see a lot of poverty in the world, perhaps they're um, cynical about whether or not um, poverty can be addressed in any sort of meaningful way. Um, what, what would you say to those people? I think if you look at just the area of aid that helps people recover, that then becomes aid to help people survive, I can understand why people have uh, uh, an increasingly a sceptical and often a cynical view of that. I can understand that. <clears throat> and I think I question some of that area in, in development as to whether we are creating dependency. That's after the, the initial aid is definitely needed because otherwise people would die. But what is it that we can do that then takes people on to the self-sufficiency, self-help, um, uh, non-dependent area? The exciting thing about Sendicat is that I think we have an example of how that can happen in rural communities. So it becomes very purposeful. Time after time, in my period when I worked for Sendakao on the, uh, the development of the organisation by working with our teams in Africa and seeing what was happening, challenging some of the stuff that wasn't working, encouraging them to think differently, to build on it, not to be satisfied with the level that we got to, but can we take people further, that sort of influence is what I felt I brought to the programme. Um, the excitement of people telling you how proud they are of what they've done themselves with the assistance of Sendakai, but they had to do it. That is mind-blowing, mind it's life-changing, and it's incredibly satisfactory to see that it can be done. Thank you, David, for that excellent interview. 
If you've been inspired to get involved with Send a Cow, do visit sendacow.org and find out how you can help them achieve their goal of transforming one million lives every single year by 2020.